Psalms chapter number 5. Psalms chapter 5. I think we might need to pray for the relationship between Jim and his daughter. That was kind of backhanded. And uh, the way he said that, his daughter's sitting right over there. So uh, you pray for that need. And uh, what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Amen. I'm thankful to get to be here. And uh, somebody asked me if I'd been out working, uh, wearing these overalls. I said, you can tell looking at them, they ain't never seen no work. Amen. I've got some to have, but but they're certainly not these. But uh, I'm thrilled that you're here tonight, and uh, I trust the Lord's going to speak to your heart. Let's begin reading verse number 1, Psalms chapter number 5, verse number 1. We'll read the entirety. It's just 12 verses, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless the preaching. The psalmist, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, pins these words. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for this opportunity tonight. I pray that the holy word of God would bless and touch each heart, Lord, and uh, that the business that is most necessary, most pressing spiritually in our lives would be accomplished tonight through the power of your word and the truth of it. We'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord, and for all that's accomplished. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was looking at the uh, weather forecast for today, I guess this morning or last night. I can't remember exactly when. Uh, but it said, and for once the weatherman seemed to be right, said that today it was going to be exceedingly dry, but it would be overcast all day. In other words, there wouldn't be any weather to speak of in the sort of the colloquial way that we'd speak about it, but just that you'd look outside and all you'd see is just gray. And I don't know how it was at your house, but that's how it was at my house all day. We, uh, in our den, we have a, a glass door that we can see out the back and all day it didn't seem like there was a single ray of sunshine that broke through. But Ken, I didn't see a single drop of rain. Uh, it was dry out there. Uh, but I didn't see a single ray of sunshine either. It was just an unbroken blanket of gray. As I read this psalm today, I began to think about what the psalmist was experiencing and how that in some ways was similar to the weather that we had for today. The, the, the circumstances he describes are a time of dark days, a time of dryness, a time of difficulty. He does not speak any particular overwhelming event that overtakes him, but rather that he is merely living in a wicked day. Uh, what we might have experienced atmospherically or weather-wise in looking at the 
gray atmosphere and the gray sky outside, spiritually and societally he was experiencing, he'd look around him and just see an unbroken cloudiness in the world that he was walking through. Now, I would say this to you tonight. I believe that could also be said societally, politically, culturally in the world that we're living in as well. It's like you look outside. Have there ever been days, and I'm sure there have in human history, and please don't misunderstand me. We live in the most blessed country in human history. We live in the lap of luxury. I'm not trying in any way to make us seem like victims, but certainly in my life and probably in much of your life, we are living in heavy days. Seems like, man, everything's a fight and everything's a war and everything is the sky falling. Everything is a challenge and everything. I mean, even you go to the store anymore. It feels like it's just tense now. And uh, everything is difficult relative to how it was maybe a year, two years, three years, whatever it might be ago. We are living in some ways, I think, in, in these gray, dark days. And I think spiritually speaking, this is true. For whatever political advantages we may be feeling like we're winning and gaining and uh, whatever bright things we may look at in society, I think we would all have to acknowledge we're living in spiritually dark days. We're living in a time when iniquity and sin and wickedness is absolutely uh, epidemic in our society and, and it is endemic in our society. It's ingrained in everything around us. And I think in some ways the psalmist was experiencing a similar situation. What I'm interested in when I read this psalm is that though there are certainly hints in this psalm that things are not going well, that is not what the psalmist focuses on. Can I make a statement to you tonight? You and you alone choose what you focus on in life. And you can choose to live in the pit of despair. You can choose to focus on only that which is discouraging and, and disparaging in your life. Or you can choose to fix your heart and your mind upon things that encourage you in the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about wild-eyed optimism. I'm not talking about rose-colored glasses. I'm merely talking about fixing our attention upon things that strengthen and encourage us as we serve the Lord. i got news for you. You and I, our calling has remained the same. It don't matter how good things get or how bad things get. You and I are called to occupy till He comes. So we better go ahead and fix our mind on the fact that we're going to be here until Jesus calls us. We're going to be serving Him. We're going to be living for Him. We're going to be a testimony for Him. We might as well steal ourselves to the days that may lie ahead of us. When I read through this passage, and it is a passage that concerns difficult times, dark times, spiritually dark times, sinful days, I find seven rays of hope that the psalmist points to that I believe gave him encouragement in that day. And I just want to read through them. I'm really not even going to do a lot of preaching on it. I just want to read through them and mention them to you tonight. Uh, when you got seven points, you have to hurry. Amen. And uh, that's what I'm telling myself. And that's what you're telling yourself. We'll see if it turns out that way. But I find seven things that he found encouragement in. Seven rays of hope for dark days. Or we, if we want to put it real plainly, seven things that ought to encourage us in the days that we're living in. The first I notice in verse number 2. Let's begin in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. So he's praying. He's talking to the Lord. He's speaking to God. And in verse 2 he says, Hearken unto the voice of my cry. And then I want you to notice this double title that he attributes and gives to God. He says, My King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. Can I tell you something I ought to encourage you tonight in the Lord? Our potentate, our king, is still reigning in this world and in our lives. Uh, there is much political upheaval in our country right now. And you may be excited about it. You may be disgusted about it. 
Uh, but I think we would all have to agree that we're living in tumultuous times. We don't know what the next few months will hold. Uh, and that is not a particular political statement of endorsement one way or the other. If you know me well enough, you know my thoughts politically. And I'm not hiding them, but I'm just saying that's not even a political statement. One thing everybody can agree on is it's about to get wild and woolly. <laughs> I mean, it's about to get crazy. I've not looked on the news. There's great likelihood the city of Louisville might be burning tonight. I don't know. And if it's not, there are cities all over our great country that have been for uh, well over a hundred days. We're living in a time of social upheaval. And we're living in a time when it looks like constant, relentless chaos around us. We're left wondering who exactly is in charge of this thing. But can I give you the answer tonight? I know who's in charge of this. And I'm not talking about who sits in the Oval Office. I'm not talking about who holds the hammer in the in, in, in Congress. But I'm talking about who sits on the throne of glory, on the circle of the earth. And I will just tell you, you ought to be encouraged as a Christian tonight, as someone that knows the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and knows God the Father through Jesus Christ, as somebody that is a child of God, we ought to be encouraged that God is still in control. I said to a girl yesterday, we was over visiting Miss Dot Weaver, and y'all pray for Miss Dot. She just had a birthday, just turned 93, and she looks better at 93 than I do at 33, amen? And uh, we saw Miss Dot and her hospice nurses came in. We were talking with them. They just came in to check on her, and, and uh, we, were, we were speaking with them. And I told the girl, I said, you know, it is easy to get dismayed in the world that we're living in, but if you read your Bible carefully, what you find is that everything that's happening is readying itself, readying the world for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you want to find a calendar that makes sense? Open your Bible. That's the calendar that makes sense. Nothing's happening out of order with what God said. God didn't say, but Charlie, it's going to get better and better and better and Jesus is going to step out of, out of one golden street and onto another one. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say it's going to get better and better and better and we're going to win everybody to Jesus and have to uh, throw away all of our gospel tracts because everybody's done got saved. It never says that. Instead, the Bible tells us that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, that perilous times shall come. And I'm just telling you tonight, when you look at a world that is burning down around you, that shouldn't cause you to think God fell off of His throne. That should cause you to look at this King James Bible and say, boy, God sure knew what He's talking about. He must be in control because it's happening just the way that He said it would. I don't know how the levers of power may change over the next few months. And again, I have my personal opinions. But I tell you this, there's one lever of power that's not going to change. There's one scepter that's not going to change hands. There's one crown that's not going to switch heads over the next few months. And that's the crown of God. That's the scepter of God. That's the lever that God holds. He is in control. He has been in control. And no matter who your president is, your God and King will remain the same. I'm just telling you uh, that our potentate is still reigning. And uh, again, none of that being a political, I'm not afraid to make a political statement, but none of that being a political statement, just merely saying it's good to know tonight that God's on the throne. No matter who and how things shift or how things change, whether it's to your liking or my liking or uh, none of us like it, whatever may happen, it doesn't change that God is still on the throne. So the first thing I see is that our potentate is still reigning. Man, that gives me reason to rejoice tonight. And then look at verse 3. The psalmist says this, and I understand he's really making more of a statement about himself than he is about God, but there is a statement about God in verse 3. He says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Now I understand what the psalmist is saying is he's saying, I'm going to pray to you. But contained within that verse, I think, is a bedrock foundation of faith and it is encompassed 
in the phrase that he uses in the first part of the verse. He says, he doesn't just say, my voice shall sound in the morning. He says, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. And I'd say this, listen, something ought to encourage you and me tonight is our prayers are still being received. God's still hearing and answering prayers. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you came for something deep tonight, you might go away disappointed. There's probably nothing I'm going to tell you you don't already know, but I hope to encourage you and stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance by saying that uh, our prayers, and we gave testimony to it tonight. One of the things I appreciate about Brother Jim, Brother Jim thinks he does a bad job, but he does the best job I've ever seen of anybody doing what he does. And one of the things I appreciate about him and and uh, how he handles this prayer time is he always emphasizes the prayers that God is answering. And that's not because we're trying to live in the retrospective. It's not because we're trying to dismiss the work that is before us in praying, but it's because the faith that we have in prayer, part of what energizes that is the, is the encouragement we gain from prayers being answered. Why do we pray? Because God answers prayers. Now, if He never answered a prayer, but He commanded us to pray, we'd still pray, of course, because that's what we're commanded to do. But God doesn't put us in that situation. The atheist, uh, the Bible denier would have us to believe that prayer is merely a religious exercise that is given for the soothing of the conscience. But if they'd ever actually talk to people that pray and know God and pray and seek His face and ask God to intervene in big ways, we're seeing God do things through prayer that doctors can't do. We're seeing God do things through prayer that, uh, that you know, financial assistance or help could not do, that counseling could not do. And listen, I'm not against any of those things, but I'm saying we're seeing prayers answered and God do mighty things. And I'm just encouraged not to know, listen, we live in a world where it feels like we're never listened to. Uh, that's one of our chief political complaints, I think, for most of us. Uh, no matter where we fall, uh, what, which aisle we're sitting in, we say, well, you know, it's just uh, the, the people in Washington, they don't listen to us. And uh, I think there's some truth to that. I do think there is a deafness towards the middle of the country that has existed for a long time in this country. And that's part of the reason President Trump won in 2016, and it surprised everybody, maybe including him, I don't know, is because nobody ever believed that there'd be that much of a silent majority in our country. Why did that happen? Because people feel like they're not getting listened to. They feel like they're not being heard. But can I tell you tonight, as a child of God, uh, you're being heard when you pray and seek the Lord. You all right tonight? It's Wednesday night prayer meeting. We're all supposed to be friendly, right? I'm just saying your prayers are being heard and that's, that's cause for praise and rejoicing and encouragement. You may feel as though no one understands what you're going through, but there is one that does. You may feel as though no one will listen to you in your heartache and your sorrow and your distress and turmoil, but there is one that listens. And you may feel like no one has the means or ability or power to change your circumstances. And I'll tell you, you might look high and low throughout this world and not find nary a person that can change what you're going through. But if you'd look a little higher than this world, you'd find one that is able. He's listening and he's hearing. So I'm encouraged tonight to know that our prayers are being received. And then look at verse number four with me. Uh, the psalmist says, for thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Now, we know that. The psalmist already knew that. Why is he stating it? Because he is affirming a truth to his flesh. When you're watching wickedness unchecked around you, you get the uh, your flesh begins to whisper in your ear that God uh, is allowing that, doesn't care, that he is weak, that he is unable. And so the psalmist isn't really saying it to God, although he's talking to the Lord. He's not even really saying it to the new man or the spiritual man or uh, not really even saying it to his neighbor. I think he's saying it to his flesh. Sometimes it's good to remind our flesh some truths about God. And I think that's why he says this. He says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. 
Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. And that's a way of saying lying, that speak lying words. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Look down in verse 9 with me. He sort of continues this line of thought. He says, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth, talking about the wicked man. He says their inward part is very wickedness. And this passage, of course, is quoted in the book of Romans about the unregenerate man. It says their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. And then he says this, destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. This is a body of what we would call, theologians would call imprecatory psalms. In other words, he is, he is uh, imploring God to pour out judgment upon uh, his enemies, and not just his enemies, but evildoers and wicked men uh, is who he is directing this towards. And I, I've sort of seen a lot of commentators, uh, you know, sort of criticize that as though that's not what David should have been doing. And I would just say this, if, if God didn't want us to see that, he wouldn't have put it in the Bible. And I'd remind you that, that these are not just David's words, they're the Holy Ghost's words. Now let me say that we should never drive, I think, a carnal, sick pleasure out of the suffering of anyone else. But I don't think it is wrong. I don't think it is wrong uh, to uh, crave justice and to desire that sin against God would be dealt with and judged and that injustice in society would be addressed and would be judged by God. And I think one of the things we can rejoice in, I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, the justice that the justice that needs to take place ain't going to happen on this side of the judgment seat of, of God, of the great white throne judgment. It just isn't. I was talking to a man yesterday whose, uh, who, whose daughter was murdered, and uh, we were talking about that. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, and we were just talking about what he had been through, and, and uh, he was talking about the struggles he had had with it and how he had prayed and sought God's uh, you know, help and had tried to forgive the man that had murdered his daughter and everything. And I was trying to give him some counsel, some encouragement. And I told him, and I won't call his name, but I called him by name and I said, you know, the worst you could do to that man is destroy his body, take the breath from his lungs. He said, but there's coming a day he's going to stand before God that doesn't just destroy the body, but destroys the soul as well. And that's what Jesus told man that, that man ought to fear. We ought not fear man that can destroy the body, but God that can destroy the body and cast uh, the soul into, into everlasting fire and, and condemnation. And, you know, I would just say this. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to see evil and wickedness judged. Now, I say that to predicate this next statement. You know, one of the things we can gain encouragement in that our persecutors are recompensed. Evildoers and wicked men will one day stand before God. Uh, it's coming to every single one of us. We will all stand before God. But it's a great source of encouragement for us as believers when we look at a world where wickedness is pervasive. Uh, where, I mean, I, and I, listen, I'm, it won't edify. I've done it before, but I'm not going to do it tonight. It won't edify. I'm not going to go down the laundry list of all the depraved, wicked, awful, nasty stuff in society. I've talked about it before. You know how it is. You know what it is. Suffice it to say that every single bit of it will be judged perfectly, completely, thoroughly, exhaustively by the standard of the righteousness of God. It's coming today. God's going to deal with every bit of it. And I listen, I am not a, a, a pacifist, ideologically speaking. Uh, I believe a man has a right to defend himself. And I believe that a country has a right to defend herself. And I believe there's times when it may be just and righteous for that country uh, to have to do that, or certainly for an individual in the protection of himself and his property and his family. Uh, I'm not a pacifist, but I'm saying this. We don't have to worry that justice is in our hands to meet out. 
Uh, justice is in God's hands. Vengeance belongeth unto the Lord. And that's good to know because God will do a lot better job of it than I ever could. As I said to that man, the worst thing I could do would be take the breath from someone's body, take the days that they have left on their calendar, but God can deal with them eternally. And I rejoice in the fact tonight that wickedness will be dealt with. It will be addressed. Uh, the wicked man won't prevail uh, throughout uh, the rest of, of time and eternity. God will deal with wickedness. And I rejoice in that. I, and the psalmist rejoiced in it. And the Holy Ghost seemed to rejoice in it. I ain't going to feel bad about rejoicing in it. I'm going to feel good about rejoicing in the fact that one day uh, those that have committed iniquity, if they don't in the grace of God turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, how would you feel if they got saved? I'd rejoice, man. I'd rejoice. That's what I want for them. I want them to get born again. I want them to get saved. I want them to get changed and transformed. You say, but what about all that they've done? It will have died with Christ on Calvary. It will have already been judged when Christ died for their sins. Uh, so justice even in that circumstance prevails. That's what I'd love for them. But if they refuse to do so, I do rejoice in the fact that one day God is going to call to account, call to record every evil thing that has been done uh, that has not been uh, that has not been pardoned by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. So I see that our persecutors are going to be recompensed. Look down at verse number 7. I like this one. Uh, the Bible says, but as for me, so David's been talking about wicked men and what God's going to do and how God's going to deal with them, how they're living and how one day they'll have to answer for that. But in verse 7, he says, but as for me, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Can I tell you something you ought to rejoice in tonight? That our place is retained. So what do you mean, preacher? we got a place we can come to and worship the Lord. The psalmist says, every time I go into the house of God, I'm going in by God's mercy. And that's true. You and I both know that's true. There's people who would love to be in church tonight that can't be in church tonight. Uh, there's people probably undoubtedly in a city this large that may have been planning to be at church tonight. But uh, instead, they found themselves in the presence of God before they were in the presence of, of their brethren in the house of God. And the fact that you and I are here, we're here by the mercy of God. That's true in a broad sense in that none of us would be here were it not for the mercy of His grace and salvation. Uh, we wouldn't be here if He hadn't saved us and changed our life. But even the fact that we made it here tonight, have you driven around? You see how the people in, in this city drive? We're here by the mercy of God. I'm just saying none of us, none of us uh, necessarily have a guarantee to be here. If we are here, we ought to rejoice in the fact that we're here. And he says, in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. And I like that. He says, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And then he says, in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. You notice the difference there. One of them, he says, I'm going to be in the house. And the next, he says, I'm going to worship toward thy, thy temple. What he's saying is this. I'm going to go into a physical location and I'm going to worship. But I'm worshiping on a lot higher plane than just in that physical location. He says, I'm worshiping toward thy holy temple, meaning the very presence of God. Here's what the psalmist is saying. You know, in the midst of a world that is falling apart, I'm going to go into the house of God. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to worship there. I'm going to get in the presence of God. I'm going to enjoy God's presence and His Word and His truth. And he's saying, there I will find the peace that I so desperately need. And you and I get to do that tonight. In fact, we get to do it in a more real way than David ever experienced. For we have God in the person of the Holy Ghost indwelling us. We are the temple of God. 
What an amazing thing. Uh, we have a whole Bible sitting here between leather covers that we can uh, read, that we can appreciate. David never had a whole Bible in front of him. What a blessing that is. Uh, we have a, 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 a plethora, a legacy of godly music that we can sing and fix our mind upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying church is better now than David ever had it. And David was rejoicing in it. I understand all the theological distinctions between the Old Testament system of worship and the New Testament uh, system of worship. And I understand, but this was church to him. That's what he's talking about. When he says that, that uh, into thy house, he's talking about going into the temple, which was the place of worship. And I'm saying we have better church now than they ever had then. And what a blessing it is that our place, that we still have a place. Can I tell you something? I, I've been, I was speaking with the missionary on uh, Sunday night, and I appreciate that family. They were sweet that dropped in on us. We were talking about China and the things that he had experienced in his time there, and they want to go back right now. China's a very closed place. If you've paid attention to our missionary letters, you know our missionaries in China. The Tolsons got ran out of China. They're in Taiwan right now waiting for things to die down so they can go back onto the mainland of China, and they're doing what they can. But he was talking about church and the church experience that they have in China. In some ways, I think it is more rich than what we experience here. Uh, because persecution lends a preciousness to what you're doing. Uh, the harder something is to attain, the sweeter it is to you. And so certainly with the persecution they're experiencing, there's a tenderness and a sincerity and a richness to their experience in the house of God. But it also reminded me how blessed we are that we can worship as freely as we can in this country. And you know, I, I mean, I'm talking about there's, there's places on American soil where they can't even worship freely. You understand that? You understand we were basically in that situation a few months ago and could have still been in it. I'm saying that it's a blessing to be able to... We assume we will always have a place to worship. I was watching uh, some folks uh, that were gathered in a vigil outside of Supreme Court the past few days ago, and they were singing Amazing Grace for Charlie. And I thought about these two, 300 people gathered outside of Supreme Court singing Amazing Grace, and uh, the media was praising them for this. Meanwhile, Jack Trevers over in California getting fined $5,000 every time they sing Amazing Grace in their own church building. Talking about American soil. We better rejoice that we got a place we can come to. We better not take it for granted because it may not always be there. And I'm just saying, if you got nothing else to rejoice in tonight, you ought to rejoice that God's still on the throne. You ought to rejoice your prayers are getting hurt. You ought to rejoice that God's going to judge the unrighteous one day. You ought to rejoice you got a church you can go to. Uh, and I don't say that specifically and distinctly, although you know I believe this is the greatest church in the world, but I don't even speak about it distinctly about Wall Ridge. The mere fact that there's a place amongst the people of God where we can come and worship and rejoice in the Lord, man, that's something to praise God for. So our place is retained. Look at verse 8 with me. The psalmist says this, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. I am sure David at this moment in his life is experiencing what you and I have experienced at times. He is probably experiencing somewhat of a crisis concerning what he is to do, what direction to go, what decision to make. And I, I think were that not the case, he might not have included so explicitly this, this plea for God to lead him. He needed to be led, so he was asking God to lead him. But when he asked God to lead him, he asked it in two ways. One, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. In other words, he's saying, God, show me what is right by your standards for me to do. Now, David had, uh, you know, some 600 and some odd commandments, the Old Testament, by which he could gauge and discern what was right. But, you know, we have even more than that today. We have 
uh, the illumination of the New Testament, the revelation of the life of Christ and then the, the exposition of that life in the Pauline epistles and the New Testament epistles. And so we have much more than even David had. But David was saying, Lord, I want to know what you believe is right so that I can do that. It's talking about morally speaking, spiritually speaking, biblically speaking. Lord, lead me in my righteousness. Show me what is right and scriptural so I can do it. And then the second thing he says is make thy way straight before my face. In other words, he's saying, Lord, not just biblically and scripturally and spiritually and morally, but practically speaking, I don't know which direction I should go in my life. We are forever faced with all kinds of decisions that we have to make. That It's not a matter of right and wrong, but it's a matter of finding the will of God. It's not necessarily right to live on one part of town, wrong to live on the other. It's not necessarily right to drive one sort of car and not drive another. I will refrain from making vehicle jokes at this moment. You know, it's not necessarily wrong or right about those things, but God has a will about it. You better believe God cares about where you live. You better believe that to the degree that it affects the way that you can provide and take care of your family and make decisions in your life. He cares about what you drive. He cares about uh, what kind of house you have. He cares about these decisions that you are making. And uh, as that is the case, that means that we can pray and ask God for His leadership and guidance. And I believe He'll guide us. You know, when my children ask me uh, for, you know, my opinion, which is already or start like not happening anymore, but... Uh, <laughs> When they ask me for my opinion about something, they want to know what I want or what I desire. It doesn't matter how small it is. If they ask me, I'll give them my opinion. It doesn't matter what it is. If they're asking me which shoe to put on first, I'll answer them. They want to know what my opinion is about it. And I believe when we pray and seek the Lord, I believe if we're genuinely seeking Him about a decision in our life, a practical decision, and I believe if we're persistent in the seeking of Him, He'll give us His answer. Now, He may do it by constraining our decisions till we have to make a particular decision. He may do it through the wise counsel of another individual that comes and, and says, you know, this is better than, than that. Or He may do it by, as He so often does, supernaturally impressing upon our heart or mind whatever that course is that we need to take in our life. But I'm just glad to know tonight, and I praise the Lord, that when I don't know what to do, God does know what to do. And because He hears and answers prayer, and we're already praising Him for that, we ought to go ahead and praise Him that our path is reliable. That when we don't know what to do, He knows what to do. Because He always knows what to do. And we can seek His face, and we can ask His wisdom and His guidance, and, and He'll disclose that. And people say, well, preacher, should I pray about such a small thing? Now, if you've been around here, you've heard me say this before, but I will share again the anecdote I heard Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, famous Bible teacher, was uh, doing a question and answer uh, session years ago, and uh, somebody asked him the question, said, Dr. Morgan, do you believe God cares about the small things in, in life? They were talking about prayer and, and talking to the Lord and seeking His face, and said, do you believe God cares about the small things? Should we pray about small things? And he had the most profound answer I've ever heard. He said, what? in your life could be big to God. Now stop and think about it. What in your life could be big to God? It's big to us. But the truth is, nothing in our life would be big to God. I mean, we're talking about the God that stepped out from behind the, the veil of nothing and stepped out onto, onto nothing and flung the stars and the universe out into existence. We're talking about the one that, that, that meted out the waters in the palm of his hands and the lines in his hands. We're talking about the one that measured the universe in the span of his palm. I mean, we're talking about the one that keeps the planets in their course. 
We're talking about the one upon which all laws of nature and all laws of creation are based upon His infallible work. What in your life could be big to Him? But you know what He commands you to do is to pray, to ask. He commands us to knock that it may be open, to seek that we may find, to ask that it might be given unto us. So that tells me this, nothing in your life is ever big to God. Conversely, nothing in your life is ever small to God. It's not how God views things. It's not how He deals with things. Uh, you say, preacher, this is small for God. Yeah, but you're big to God. And if it's big to you, if it's meaningful to you, or even if it's small to you, but it's enough to gain your attention, then it's worthy praying over, seeking His face. Our path is reliable. I don't know who that was for, but the Lord had it for somebody. Look down at verse number 11 with me. Uh, the psalmist says, but let all those that put their trust in me rejoice. Let them ever shout. I like that. Ever shout. Not mostly shout. Not sometimes shout. Not when things are going well, shout. Let them ever shout for joy. Why? Because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Man, I tell you, there's people need to make that their life verse. Let, let, let us be joyful in Him. And it reminds me, we can rejoice tonight because our peace is resilient. We don't have to let the wickedness of the world rob our peace. I'm talking about these are dark days, but David sees rays of hope. He sees sunshine in the face and promises of God. And he says, listen, even though things may not be going the way that I desire because you defend me, because you protect me, because you watch over me, because you are my God, because you are my king, I can have peace in you. And he says, I can rejoice. And he says it really, in a way, he says it three times. He says, let them, though all those that put their trust in thee rejoice, let them ever shout for joy. He says, let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Three times in three different ways, he says, we ought to be happy in the Lord. We ought to rejoice in the Lord. Listen, we ought, we ought to rejoice that our peace is not contingent upon our circumstances. It's sure enough not contingent upon whether we're winning or losing politically. It's not contingent upon whether our bank account is full or empty. And I know all those things may be to a degree important to us, but that doesn't mean they get to dictate our peace. Christ said this, that He'd give us a peace that no man could take. And now not everybody has peace. So what happened? Well, they gave it up. They let other things be the basis and foundation of their peace. I'm only going to have peace when X, Y, or Z is happening. I'm only going to have peace when this or that is going on. And we live in a world of Christians robbed of their peace by letting lesser things than Christ be the foundation of their peace in the first place. If your happiness is dependent upon things going well financially, sooner or later, your, your water heater is going to go out and you're going to be all tore up. If your peace is contingent upon uh, your chosen political preference, winning or succeeding sooner or later, I hate to tell you this, it's it's uh, the legacy of our country that power switches hands. It's just the reality of it. And you're going to be all tore up. Listen, if your peace is dependent upon you feeling good, most folks get above the age of 60, give up on that anyway. But uh, if your peace is contingent upon you feeling good, sooner or later you're going to get sick and you're going you're gonna to lose your peace. But if it's contingent upon the person and character of Christ, and the fact that you're a child of God, I have peace because God's in control. My heavenly Father sits upon His throne and He's in control. And I never have to doubt. I never have to worry. Now that's not to say I don't doubt or worry. It's not to say I don't grow discouraged at times. I'm human just like you're human. But I'm saying in those moments, uh, that listen, that's, that's a bug, not a feature. That's not how things should be. For a child of God, we ought to be able to rest in Him. So our peace is resilient. And then finally tonight, look at verse 12. The psalmist closes in this way. He says, For thou, O Lord, 
wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Listen, I could tell personal anecdote after personal anecdote of how it has seemed when things were falling apart, the favor of God enveloped me and my family and gave us and granted to us and blessed us in ways that we never even expected or asked God to do. And you know what I'd say tonight? We have reason to rejoice. We have these rays of hope. What are they? Well, our potentate is reigning. God's on the throne. And our prayers are received. God's hearing our prayers. Our persecutors are recompensed. God will deal with the unrighteous. Our place is retained. We've got a place we can come and worship. We've got a church family. We've got folks that know the Lord and that love the Lord and love us. Our path is reliable. When we don't know what to do, God does know what to do. Our peace is resilient. It doesn't matter if the world shakes off its foundations. The foundation of the Word of God is ever true and sure. But finally tonight, I think we can rejoice because our provision is robust. You say, preacher, why can I rejoice in these dark days? Because you and I are still far more blessed than we ever, ever, ever could deserve to be. Can I tell you, if you were a million times the person you are, you still wouldn't deserve how richly God has blessed you. And that's doubly true for me. I'm telling you this, and and I've never been a fan of this attitude of, of, you know, well, we don't deserve what we've got, so quit complaining. Because I found that doesn't quiet the flesh. But I do think there is a reality and a truth of recognizing the goodness of God in our lives and using that to vouchsafe our mind and heart against doubts and anxiety. In other words, saying this, Brother Ken, God loves me an awful lot. And I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through, but I know He wouldn't love me that much one second. And an immutable, unchangeable God. That's how the Old Testament just about closes. I am the Lord thy God. I change not, Brother Charlie. The the Hebrews writer says, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, The Bible tells us He does not change. He wouldn't love me that much one day and then quit loving me the next. So we can rejoice even when things are not going well because He has blessed us far more than we could ever hope to deserve. And He is continuing to bless us. And that is a reminder that He takes His favor and wraps it around us like a shield. Uh, You and I don't know the things we've been spared of. I think the first million years in heaven is just going to be us rejoicing over things we didn't even know God did for us. I mean, things we never even thought about. I'm talking about cars that just about run over us we never even saw. I've seen the way some of y'all drive. I'm talking about sicknesses that could have, have touched our life, but God spared us of heartache and turmoil that could have reached us. But there was a shield around us. There was a hedge about us of God's favoring goodness. I'm just telling you, why can I rejoice tonight, preacher? Haven't you turned on the news? Yeah, I've seen it. Preacher, haven't you seen what the other side's trying to do? Yeah, I've seen it. Preacher, haven't you seen how everything's falling apart and everything's burning down? Yes, I've seen it. But I'm just telling you tonight that we do not deserve what we have. God's been far better to us than we deserve. But things would be a lot worse had God not been as good to us as He is. When we look at the bad things in our life, you know what we ought to think? We shouldn't think, well, God, God messed up. What we ought to think, Brother Ken, is imagine how bad it'd be if God wasn't watching over us. And isn't it good to know that if this thing does touch my life, it must be for my good because God protected me from all these other things. He could have protected me from this. So if He didn't, it must be because He has a plan in this situation. I'm just, you know, and I don't even know if it was really preaching. I'm just telling you, you got something to be encouraged about tonight 
in the Lord. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. You might want to tonight. I'm not trying to pad an altar call. I'm being genuine. If God pressed on your heart and you want to find a place down here and just thank Him for His goodness, you're at liberty to do so. Uh, let's, Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name.